Just a few weeks ago, the protests were all about the stay-at-home orders and wearing masks. But then, after the death of George Floyd on May 25th, the protests have become about something far more serious than just wearing masks. They're about being treated unfairly. They're about access to justice and opportunity, all because of the color of someone's skin. Now, as you can tell, I am a white man. In fact, I'm a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white man, which makes me about as white as it gets. And so as such, I have never had the awful experience of being turned down for a job because of the color of my skin. I've never been called a name because of the color of my skin. I've never been wary or anxious or fearful about law enforcement because of the color of my skin. So when it comes to unfair treatment because of my race, honestly, I don't have a lot of real experience in that area. So nothing in my experience qualifies me to speak on this matter today. But the source of my words today are not my own thoughts on this issue. They come straight from the pages of the Bible. Last week, we started a series based on the New Testament book of 1 Peter. The name of the series is Be Different. And it talks about, in this book, how God changes us. And I can't think of a more important topic in this particular time. Now, 1 Peter has a great deal to say about injustice. And that's because it's written to Christians 2,000 years ago who were the victims of a tremendous amount of persecution. Here's what we read in 1 Peter 1, verse 13. It says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. So in the face of all of the turmoil that was going on, they are told, first of all, to think very clearly about what's happening so that they can act carefully, to set their minds for action and to be self-controlled. And then they are told to set their hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. And the reason that's important is because nothing in this world will ever be right until Jesus Christ returns. But that does not mean that we are to turn a blind eye to all of the problems of this world and kind of look up to the sky while we wait for Jesus Christ to return. It means that we must not fall for the trap of thinking that we, by human effort alone, can solve the problems of this world. We can and we should work to make things better in this world, but our full hope is in the power of Jesus Christ. And that's because, as we talked about last week, real change occurs from the inside out. It does not occur from the outside in. Jesus brings that kind of change. Discrimination on the basis of race was outlawed in this nation back in 1964. But that, of course, did not make it go away. And that's because people do not change simply because a law is passed. Real change begins on the inside. It can't be legislated. It can't be forced. It can't just even be put into law and make people change. Now, the reason that change is such a challenge is because the problem with us, and therefore the problem with this world, is complex. It's a three-layered problem. Most of the problems that we face are complex. There are layers to them. For example, I've been facing a problem with my jaw for the past nine months. Now, pain is what made me aware of the problem, and that's layer one. That's usually kind of our indication that we have a problem is pain occurs. For several months, I endured the pain in my jaw, 
and I took Tylenol whenever it got too bad. Like most guys, I was just kind of hoping maybe it would go away. Well, it didn't go away. The pain actually got worse. And the reason is because the pain that I was feeling on the surface pointed to a deeper problem that I couldn't see. I had an infection in my sinus. I couldn't see the infection, but it was what was causing the pain. That was layer two of my problem. So last November, I had successful surgery on my sinus to remove that infection. Problem solved. At least that's what I thought. This last month, the pain has begun to return. Why? Well, I learned this week that it turns out that I have a bad tooth that has caused the infection in my sinus, which caused the pain in my jaw. So it's turning out now to be a three-layered problem, not just a pain problem. And that's the nature of the problem that we find ourselves facing over and over again in this world. I heard a reporter ask the question this week that's really on everybody's mind. He said in a kind of exasperated tone, what is wrong with this world? Here's how 1 Peter describes what's wrong with this world. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 19. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. These verses describe the three layers behind what's wrong with us and therefore what's wrong with this world. Layer number one is the fact that we are strangers here. We're all strangers here. Now, the surface layer, this layer, is where the pain of the problem is usually first felt. What's been showing up in the streets of our nation this past week doesn't just point to a single problem. There is a racism problem. There is a justice problem. There is a lawlessness problem. And there's many more problems. But common to all of these problems is the pain of not belonging, of being treated like a stranger, of being an outsider, of being on the outside looking in. Now, we are told in these verses that we are to live as strangers here in reverent fear. And the reason is because we are, in fact, strangers here now. And the reason is that God, our Father, is our one true home, but we have run away from home in a sense. We've turned away from God and we've decided to do our own thing. That now makes us strangers here, separated from God. Now, the question now is how are we going to try to find shelter? How are we going to try to make some kind of home of this world apart from God? Well, as it says in the section I just read, the only adequate shelter is to live in reverent fear. We are to be strangers here, to live as strangers here in reverent fear. Reverent means to be guided by God, to, to revere Him, to take His instructions seriously. Fear in the Bible is to take God seriously, to give Him weight. So we are to live as strangers here, finding shelter in the truth and the direction of God. But if we don't turn back toward God, we will turn to some other way to feel like we belong here, because we all feel this pain of being a stranger here. Racism, I think, is one of the ugliest ways throughout history, of trying to alleviate the pain of not belonging here. Racism uses race to construct invisible barriers between people, barriers that include some 
and exclude others. Those, of course, on the inside feel this artificial sense of belonging, but those on the outside feel a great deal of pain by being on the outside. Now, with physical pain, there are a lot of different ways to cope with physical pain. There is, of course, over-the-counter solutions like aspirin or Tylenol. And then there are prescription painkillers like morphine. And then, of course, there are illegal drugs like heroin to take away the pain. Now, there's also many ways to cope with the pain of being a stranger here, the pain of not belonging in this world. And some of those solutions are legal ones, and some of them are not legal, just like painkillers. I noticed this past week some of the individuals that were marching were, of course, wearing masks. But as the camera zoomed in on the eyes, you could see the eyes just full of tears and tears just streaming down their cheeks. And as I looked at that, I thought, that's just a tremendous amount of pain. Now, if that is the way that everyone expressed their pain, then we could see it for what it is, a great deal of pain. But many mask their pain in ways that hide it from view, and it doesn't look like pain to us. You know, even the looters and the ones that are destroying property are doing what they are doing because of pain, probably a long history of pain. Now, that does not make it right, and law enforcement should oppose and defend against lawlessness, just like they do against the use of illegal drugs. But if all we see in this situation are the words on the sign or the looting that's going on, if that's all we see, that's all we talk about, then we are missing the real message of what is wrong with our world and what is going on right now. There is a tremendous amount of pain. Some feel more pain than others. But there's a lot of pain. Why? Well, that brings us to layer number two. Layer number two is an empty way of living. We've all taken an approach to life that eventually leaves us empty on the inside. We've all tried to make a home here that isn't really quite home. Now, this emptiness is like the infection in my sinus that caused the pain in my jaw. Until the emptiness is cured... The pain can only be numbed, which honestly is what most people spend most of their lives doing, just simply numbing the pain. So where does this empty way of life come from? How do we learn these empty patterns, these empty ways of living? Well, as it says here, it's handed to us by our forefathers. We are all born into different times, into different places, different families, different cultures. But there's one thing that we all share in common, and that is that we are handed an empty way of life. Now, the word empty here literally means to chew with no purpose. That's what the Greek word in the New Testament means, to chew without purpose, just kind of a continual chewing. And it's kind of like what we do with gum. You know, after the first five minutes or maybe 10 minutes, the flavor goes. But we tend to just kind of keep chewing because we've been doing it, and we just kind of keep chewing and chewing, even though the flavor's gone. Every family hands to their children a way of living that is kind of like a piece of gum that's been chewed for generations. Now, those families form communities. Those communities form societies. Those societies form cultures and nations. And every generation tends to add some of their own flavoring to this cultural wad of gum. But those flavors also fade. And what we tend not to realize when we want change is that what we're dealing with is this big cultural wad of gum, this emptiness that 
is just a way of life that we've been handed down from generations that shapes how we think and shapes what we do and how we view our world. And the wad of gum is empty. It leaves us empty on the inside. Why empty? Well, this brings us to layer number three. That is unholiness. Here is how God states the deepest part of our problem. He actually states it in the beginning of the passage that we read. He says, be holy because I am holy. The reason why we keep coming up with empty ways of living, that for all of the variety keep generating so much pain, is because God is holy and we are not. Now, my first introduction to the word holy came by watching Batman on TV back in the 1960s. Robin said the word holy all the time. For example, they'd be in maybe Mr. Freeze's frosty prison, and Robin, with a shocked look on his face, would turn to Batman and say, holy icicles, Batman. And then maybe another scene, they'd be in a vat of ooze, and again, Robin would turn with shock in his face to Batman, and he'd say, holy ooze, Batman. Now, as I remember those shows, Robin seemed to pretty much be in a continual state of shock. Now, as it turns out, Robin was using the word holy appropriately. Holiness produces astonishment. The word literally means to be different. Holiness is a different that is so profound, so brilliant, that it's actually shocking. It's amazing. And that's who God is. Now, why can't God just be holy all by himself? Why the word because in this statement? Why does it say be holy because I'm holy? Why not just be holy by himself? It is because we are created in the image of God. What that means is we are forever connected to his holiness. The moral outline of our lives are designed to fit within the moral framework of who God is. Much like the shape of a shadow reflects the outline of the object that is cast by, the shape of our moral lives is created to reflect the character, the moral character of God. But from the beginning, every one of us, well, we've been coloring outside of the lines of what God says is right and wrong. And the result is emptiness and then pain because we don't do well when we separate ourselves from God. We are like a shadow on its own. Now, when God says, be holy because I'm holy, he's not saying be nice because I'm nice. He's not saying keep these list of rules because I keep these list of rules. What he's really saying is, you need to come back home to me, because this is where you belong. We need God on the inside, like our bodies need shelter. Whenever we go off on our own and make our own decisions apart from God and run our own lives independent of what God says and what God wants, it's kind of like we're running out into a winter night without a jacket on on the outside. Our body temperature, of course, then would begin to go down until we die. Now, our souls can survive the cold of being apart from God for a lifetime. But we cannot avoid in that lifetime the emptiness and the pain that that cold brings to our souls. So what is the solution to this three-layered problem? Well, the solution also has three layers. The three-layered solution. The first layer are the perishable answers. They are symbolized in these verses by silver and gold. This is the first and the most common solution 
to the pain of life. The silver and gold money basically allows us to buy the variety of painkillers that are available to numb the problem. It doesn't solve the problem, but it deals with the surface layer. It's a perishable, temporary answer that needs to be repeated again and again. So it says it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. The implication is they had already been trying to take something of value, turning silver and gold into something in this world to fill the emptiness in their souls. But that attempt is like trying to warm a soul with a campfire. It just isn't going to work. There is not enough wood in the world to make that happen because that is a perishable solution for an imperishable problem. One of the protest signs that I noticed this past week had a list of demands. It was a long list, so I don't remember all that was on the list, but these are the ones that I recall. They demanded justice for all. They demanded jobs for all. They demanded free education for all. And they demanded food for all. And when I thought about that list, I thought, you know, that honestly would be great. I really wish we could do that. But how can you accomplish that? How can you do that? Well, the answer is, it takes a lot of silver and gold. That takes a lot of money. Food for all, jobs for all, free education for all, justice for all. That requires a lot more money than is being spent on those problems right now. And that is the challenge in this world and the problems with this world. Whenever we take a surface layer approach to it, is our resources are limited. Every economic system wrestles with this challenge. How do you allocate limited resources in a way that is fair and equitable? Now, throughout history, there have basically been kind of two sides of this debate when it comes to economic theory. Either freedom on one side or control on the other side. So the question is this, do you allow freedom, the, the freedom that we have to work or not work, and the freedom that we have to work as hard as we want to to create wealth, do we allow that freedom to drive the allocation of the resources that are limited? Or do you place the authority and the, the right of deciding who gets what in the hands of someone of power in a government? Those are the kind of the options. Now, to be honest, most cultures, most countries are somewhere on that continuum of control or freedom. Now, a society like ours has historically allowed freedom to drive more of the allocation question. We are now beginning to move more and more towards control, but we are still pretty much in the, the freedom side. And as a result, like most other societies that have done this, we have produced a tremendous amount of wealth. In fact, our culture has produced more silver and gold than any other culture before it. But there still is not enough to provide for all that is needed. Many are still treated unfairly in this nation. Many do not have access to the same opportunities in this nation. Many do not have access to justice because justice is expensive. And that, honestly, well, that's unacceptable. But I thought, as I looked at that sign, what if you could? Let's just take aside how expensive. Let's just say we could come up with the resources. What if we could do everything on that sign? Basically, it would be money for all. What if we could accomplish that? Well, the pain and the emptiness on the inside would remain. No external solution can fix this internal problem. Now, I'm not saying that we should abandon the pursuit of justice for all. 
that we should not work to improve the opportunities for people who don't have access to opportunities to earn a living and to create wealth. I'm not saying that we should abandon those projects. No, the pain that these problems cause are very real, and the people that they affect are very real. But what I am saying is this. While we work to bandage the real wounds of this broken world, we need to address the cancer that is silently growing on the inside and will one day claim every soul. That cancer is unholiness. And there's only one answer to that problem, and that is the imperishable answer. The imperishable answer of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we are very familiar, of course, with what money can buy, what we can exchange for our money. But we're usually not that aware of what can be purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. So again, here's what it says. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. What is it that makes the blood of Christ precious and not gross or weird. Well, his blood is the only means of exchange that can redeem us. The word redeem means to purchase back, to buy back. To buy or to purchase is to exchange one thing for another. So I go to the grocery store and I exchange money for food. That's a purchase. That's a buy. To buy back means, to back means to, it refers to the past. So to redeem means to exchange what I have done in the past for a different future than I have purchased with my past. How does that happen? I mean, we can't go back in time and, and remake our purchases and remake our decisions. We can't undo the past. Our past is unholy. The blood of Jesus flowed from the veins of a man who lived a holy life on this earth. Jesus lived a perfect life. His life was in exact conformity to the, the moral character of God. And that makes it a valid exchange for our lives, which are unholy. No amount of silver or gold can be given in exchange for unholiness. But Jesus was not just a holy man. Jesus was God in flesh. What that means is there is no limit to the number of lives that his blood can redeem. His blood has unlimited power. So the blood of Jesus is the only substance that can exchange our past for a new future that we don't deserve. When we accept Jesus, we are redeemed, and our future begins to take a different direction to it. So what, what now? What if we've been redeemed? We've accepted this offer of forgiveness, and we decided to follow Jesus Christ. Are we just supposed to watch the protests and do nothing? That brings us to layer three, the imperishable seed which is love. This is how we can make a real difference in our world. It goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, now that you have been purified, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So when we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, that's not just a sign that kind of hangs around our neck. 
it begins a purifying process in us that we participate in. But this process of purifying shows up primarily in the way we treat other people, in the way we love. Now, Christians, of course, are not the only ones capable of love, but Christian love is unique and that it grows out of a seed that is unique. It grows out of a seed that is imperishable. The seed is the living and enduring Word of God. Without the instructions from God's Word, without the DNA embedded in God's Word to guide us, to guide our life, and to guide our love, our love will wither and fail. That's why it goes on to say, For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It was about a year ago, I think, that we had the super bloom, the wildflower super bloom here. And here's a picture that my wife and I uh, got to take right when my wife and I were visiting a spot in central California. And if you got a chance to get out and see some of the super bloom last year, it was amazing. Whole fields and rolling hills just covered with all different colors of flowers. But if you were to go back to this place now, where are all those flowers? Well, they're not there. As it says, the grass withers and the flowers fall. This is the way our love is naturally. Like wildflowers, it flourishes under only ideal conditions. So we can have super bloom love events where we really do well in love, but then the conditions shift and our love withers along with the conditions. The protests are about a demand for change. And honestly, maybe this time it will be different and things really will change. But if the past is any indication of the future, not much is going to change. Now, I hope that's not the case, but that's the way it has been. And the reason is because real change is inside out. And it's always powered by enduring love. But our love, as I said, is perishable. You know, it's really hard to have, as it says here, a sincere love for each other with no agendas. And to love each other deeply. That means it endures through all kinds of stuff from the heart because we really care. And to do this kind of love and to practice this kind of love ongoingly in all kinds of situations that love can only grow out of the imperishable seed of God's love for us so let's not just watch what's happening let's get down to the business of loving each other deeply from the heart and love the people that God places around us that is what can make an imperishable impact on this world let's pray father as we see the tremendous amount of pain in all of its form. God, we recognize that we ourselves have been handed an empty way of living. We have ways of thinking and ways of uh, processing things and ways of acting that is like an old piece of gum that's just been chewed on way too long. And we thank you for giving us a new imperishable seed that can teach us how to love in a way that only you know how. So, Father, we pray for protection. We pray for change. We pray, God, that you would bring deep change in the hearts of people as they look beyond the surface problems and look to what's really going on in the hearts of all of us. We ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.